So today I am uh, going to encourage you with some words from the book of Nehemiah. So I want to invite you to turn with me to Nehemiah. You say, where in the world is that? Well, if you go to Chronicles, 1 Samuel, then Chronicles, then keep on going. You'll come to Ezra, then Nehemiah and Esther. Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, they're all kind of in the same uh, time frame in the Old Testament uh, history. So I'm so glad you're here today. As Terry was mentioning a, mon- a minute ago, we have two groups of people here today. We have folks that are members at Great Hills And can I just tell you how much I love you and appreciate you. Thank you for your love for God. Thank you for your love for the body of Christ, the church that meets here. And then the other group of folks that we have are our guests and visitors. And we always have to be cognizant and just be mindful of people that God brings to us as a church family. You you think about it, when you come into a church, especially this size with so many buildings and entrances and exits, and it can be a little bit overwhelming. So if you're a guest, we're just glad that you're here. We're, We're just people who love God and we, we love one another and, and we're, we're delighted that you've come to worship with us today. Today we're going to have a, a lesson on leadership and, and really the whole series of messages that I'll be preaching from the book of Nehemiah, uh, I've entitled it, Let, Let's Build Something because Nehemiah is going to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem, but I'm praying that God would build something even greater than walls and buildings and edifices, that God would build you and he would build me to be the kind of leaders uh, that he wants us to be. In fact, today is we're going to look at Nehemiah, just kind of a beginning, just kind of getting our, our engines running. I'm going to take you through some Old Testament history to kind of bring you up to 444 BC, which is the year when we pick up the Bible and read it in a moment, Nehemiah 1.1, when he talks about the year, that's going to be 444 BC. But there's so much here in this passage of scripture and really in this entire book, 13 chapters. And over the next several weeks and maybe even months, and we're going to study together how to be a good leader. And what, what does that look like? And again, that, that's funny. I was watching that a moment ago. What, what not to do. But Nehemiah is going to tell us and show us the things that, that we can do. And by the way, if you're here today, there's a very good possibility that you are a leader already. And by the way, if you're a parent, welcome to leadership. You are leading your family. Moms and dads, you are leaders. Many of you own your own businesses some of you are in ministry and you have other people who, who report to you and, and you're kind of over that ministry. Some of you are CEOs and presidents. Some of you are employers. Some of you are supervisors. Some of you are coaches. Many of you are in some capacity uh, in leadership. And so today and throughout the several weeks, I want to encourage you as you take upon yourself that, that great opportunity and great responsibility and privilege from God to lead and to uh, lead very well. John Maxwell is right. Everything rises and falls on leadership. And so today, we as a country in five days, we're go- there's going to be a transference of, of leadership from one administration uh, to the other administration. And so whether you're happy about that or, or, or not, it's important, it's incumbent, it really it's imperative upon us to pray for this new leader that is going to come into office and pray that God gives him wisdom and God surrounds him with counselors of wisdom who will instruct him uh, in the ways of righteousness, in the ways that would bring prosperity and blessing to our nation. I love the University of Texas's logo. I don't know if you've, you've seen it or, or you've, you've read it, but if I begin to quote it, maybe you can fill in the blank. That what happens here changes the world. I tell you what, that is a, that is a I don't know who came up with that. That is a powerful slogan. That is a powerful motto, a mantra that what happens here 
at the University of Texas changes the world. And I might, if I could, just humbly add to that and make it even a little stronger. Would you allow me to do that? Watch this. What happens here not only changes the world, but changes eternities. And so what we're doing today is we're, we're a people of God and we're a people of faith. Not to minimize or mitigate a great university's slogan, but think about it, that what happens here within these walls and then what happens as we exit the, this campus and we take the life of God and the life of the Holy Spirit within us and we share that life, that we impact people's lives not only now, but also for all time and for all eternity. So let, let me just kind of bring you up to speed as to where this book is. And somebody, we were praying a moment ago, and he goes, Lord, thank you that we're going to study the book of Nehemiah because it's been a long time since I've read that book, or I don't really know a whole lot what is going, so what is going on. So let me just kind of bring you up to speed. So let's go to 1000 BC. 1000 BC, there's a man who's crowned the new king of Israel. The king is stripped from a man by the name of Saul, and he is a uh, he, he is head and shoulders taller than everybody else. And though he is tall on the exterior, he's very small on the interior and he's a poor leader. And go, so God strips the leadership from a man by the name of Saul and he gives it to a shepherd king in 1000 BC, a man by the name of anybody, and King David. That's right. And David reigns from 1000 till about 970 BC. And God used King David, as we know, the greatest, arguably the greatest of all the Old Testament kings was David. And he expands Jerusalem. He expands the territory and God uses him powerfully. And he turns the kingdom over to a man in 970, to a, he's been known as the wisest man who ever lived. His name starts with an S, anybody? Solomon, that's right. And Solomon reigns from about 970 to 931 BC. Now Solomon you're talking about wise. You're talking about expanding the kingdom of Israel, its borders north, south, east, and west. It was the most powerful reigning monarch he was in the known world because of his great wisdom that God blessed him with this enormous ability of counsel and wisdom and might. And God used him, but Solomon made some very egregious mistakes. And you know, some some of his wives, he had many wives and concubines and they turned his heart away from Jehovah, the one true God. And at the end of his kingdom, it began to deteriorate. So much so that in 931 BC, the kingdom is divided. Does this sound familiar to anybody? Some of you are going, that's right. It's been a while since I've think, thought about Old Testament history. Keep going. Well, thank you, I, I will. I'll, I'll keep sharing this with y'all. 931, there are two men who take the reign from Solomon. It wasn't Solomon's desire. Uh, he would much rather just one of the men reign, but it's divided between Jeroboam and Rehoboam. You heard those names before. Rehoboam was Solomon's son, but Jeroboam was Nebat's son. And so they have this division. And so they divide between the 10 tribes in the north called Israel proper, and then you have the two tribes in the south called Judah proper with their capital kingdom in Jerusalem. So now we have a divided kingdom. And then it begins to get really ugly. God tells these two kings and God tells their subsequent leaders, those reigning monarchs that, listen, if you will follow God's precepts and his commandments 
And you'll do what Moses commanded us to do in the law. And then comes those prophets, you know, the major prophets and the minor prophets. And the only difference is, is the length of their books. All of them had the same message. And it was this, behold, God is a gracious, awesome God. But unless you repent and turn from your wicked ways, that same awesome God, he will judge and he will chastise. And sure enough, it happened. In 722 BC, the 10 tribes in the north fell to the Assyrian Empire. And when they fell, I mean, they, they fell hard and they were deported through all the nations in the world. And that was 722 BC, the Assyrian Empire. But Judah, with her capital in Jerusalem, lasted until 586 BC. And that's when it starts with a B. Anybody know the kingdom that took them? The Babylonian Empire, that's right. And so the Babylonians come and they deported the children of Israel, and instead of casting them all throughout the nations of the world like the Assyrians did their neighbors to the north, Israel, what they did is they sent them all to the same place. They sent them to Babylon, and Jeremiah says, listen, you, you might as well get used to this. You're going to be here for a while. Pray for the prosperity of this city. You're going to be here 70 years, and sure enough, about 70 years, they were in Babylonian captivity. But here's the thing about God. God is so awesome. He loves his people. He's merciful. He's compassionate. And so God raises up a new kingdom in 539 BC known as the Medes and the Persian or the Medo-Persian Empire. And there's a king by the name of Cyrus. And Cyrus in 539 BC issues a decree for all the Jews in the Babylonian captivity. They can now begin to go back to their homeland. And for the, for the Bible student, there are three of these returns that are incredibly important. Let me, let me share these with you. You may want to jot these down. The first one is 538 BC, and it's, it's led by a man by the name. It starts with a Z. Any, anybody want to take a stab at that? Zerubbabel. I love it. I tell you what, if I had another son, I'd name him Zerubbabel. Just kidding. No, I wouldn't. Zerubbabel in 537 BC leads a group, a group of Jews, and they go back and what they find is a decimated, devastated city of Jerusalem. It's still under the umbrella, the rubric of the Babylonian Empire. In fact, it's the Babylonian province of Judah. And Zerubbabel goes back and he begins to help rebuild the temple. And he even made an attempt to rebuild the wall that surrounded Jerusalem. And then 458, a number of years later, Another man went, and his name was Ezra. And Ezra goes with the blessing of the, of the empire, of the Medes and the Persians, and he goes, and he wants to help restore life and worship and also help restore the, the life of the temple and the community. And so Ezra goes, and by the way, when you read the book of Ezra, I mean, a great revival of God just breaks out in all Jerusalem. It's one of the it's one of the high water marks and all the Word of God. Read it sometime. I mean, they would stand for hours upon hours and they would read the Word of God and the Spirit of God fell and there was, there was a great blessing that fell upon that city and Ezra led that in 458. And then in 444 B.C., and that's where we pick it up. In 444 B.C., there's a man, and by the way, he is not a prophet. He is not a priest. He is not a person like me, a man of the cloth, a clergy. He is more like you. He is a layman. He is a cupbearer. 
And a cupbearer, by the way, in that time was someone who would take the wine and the food that was going to be fed to the king and he would eat it and he would drink it. And if there was poison in the food or the drink, well, dead be the cupbearer, but long live the king, right? So that was Nehemiah's job. And by the way, that was a very prestigious job. It was a very honorable job. The king, his name is Artaxerxes, by the way, he reigns from 464 to 444. And when the Bible, when I read in a moment when it says, and in the 20th year, go ahead and know it's 444, my favorite number four, it's easy for me to remember. In 444 BC, the events begin to happen where God is going to touch the heart of a layman and God's going to say, Nehemiah, it is time. I want you to go and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Now, now we're hearing a lot about a rebuilding of a wall or building a wall in the southern border of the United States. Why is that important? Why are walls important? Well, they're important for two reasons. Number one, to keep people away that don't need to be here. And number two, it's to protect those who are here legally. Now, let me explain this to you in Old Testament terms. In Proverbs 25, 28, it says, whoever has no rule over his spirit is like a city broken down without walls. Now, we can, we can live or not live with, with a wall in the southern border of the United States of America. I understand that. But they could not back then. They absolutely unequivocally could not live without a perimeter without a wall that was built. I mean a large impregnable wall that would literally protect the inhabitants within and keep the bad guys without, okay? It's absolutely important. And Jerusalem has no walls. She has no gates. They have been burned, they have been decimated. Look at this. Not only were they decimated in 586 BC by the Babylonians, but around 450 there was a group that burned the wall again, and they burned the gates again, and Zerubbabel's there, and he's trying to help rebuild it, but there are enemies there, and they keep tearing it down. In fact, they even got word to Artaxerxes, and they said, oh, king, there are people here trying to rebuild the wall, and he shut it down. And now God's going to touch the heart of a guy that works for the king, and he's going to bring it all back. And, and I'm thinking as I'm preaching this that you know, God is amazing. And what may look decimated and may look hopeless to you, God's just getting started. And if you're here today and you say, well, I'm not a preacher, I'm not a prophet, I'm certainly not a king or a queen. Well, welcome to God's agenda for your life because God loves to take the nobodies and make them somebodies so that everybody will say, what an awesome God we serve. That's just the way God works. And so God has looked out over the land and he places his finger on a guy by the name of Nehemiah. And so let, let's, let's just begin to read in verses 1 through 4. Now that you have a little bit of the backstory, what's going on, let's begin reading in verse 1. Now the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, it came to pass in the month of Kislev, that's November or December. I would encourage you to write that down. Because in chapter 2, verse 1, you're going to notice some more months and times, and it's going to be important for us, okay? So it came to pass in the month of November, December, Kislev, in the 20th year. Now, let's, let's stop right there for a minute. The 20th year is the reign of Artaxerxes. He reigns from 464 to 444. And Nehemiah is letting us know what's going on. 
that it's toward the end of the reign of Artaxerxes. And God has put it upon me. I am his cupbearer, as you'll find out later in the book. And he says, I am there. I'm in the capital city of Shushan or Susa, the citadel. And by the way, this is a winter palace of the Persians. And the kings, that's where they lived. It was heavily fortified. And uh, it, it was the place where Artaxerxes now resides. And November, December, the winter palace. And Nehemiah says, and Hanani, or Hanani, one of my brothers. Many people, myself included, believe this is one of his literal physical blood brothers of Nehemiah. One of my brothers came with men from Judah. Now, Judah, 444 B.C. They come, and Nehemiah asked them a question. And that's one of the things we're going to look at in a moment. A sign of a great leader is someone who asks, a lot of questions. They know they're not omniscient. They know that other people have information they don't. And so they humble themselves and they ask questions. And so he said, I asked them. And I asked them about two things. Number one, the Jews who had escaped and who had survived the captivity. And what he's talking about there are those Jews who had left the Babylonian captivity in one wave of deportation after another, whether it's Zerubbabel in 538 or Ezra in 458, but particularly in, in, around the time of Ezra, how are those people doing? How, how are they? Hanani, tell me. I, I love my people and I, I, I love God and, and, and I know I'm working here for this foreign king, but my heart is really with my people. And this is, strikes me as very interesting. Nehemiah doesn't have to ask this. He's got all the food he wants. He's got all the drink he wants. He's got all the prestige that he wants. And he's probably making a very hefty salary. So why is he so concerned about another land, even though it was the land of his forefathers? It's because he's a great man, okay? He's a great man. He, he can't stand the fact that he is blessed and prosperous and his people, including his own blood brother, who's come back with this report, are in such distress. And he says, I asked them, number one, how goes it with the people? Then number two, watch this. How is Jerusalem? I'm telling you guys, Jerusalem is a big deal. It's a big deal today. And if you've never been, you, you really ought to go before you all live there in the great millennium, okay? And I, Lord willing, one day I may, if he so wills, we can go as a church, a group of us, and go and just look. And I'll never forget that time in 08 when we came over the hill and there the dome of the rock was, and there you hear the songs, and you see Jerusalem. And I'm telling you, something just welled up in me and with, with such joy. And I, and I, I was just thinking about what the Word says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And Nehemiah's going, how are the people, and how is my homeland? And they said to me, now watch this, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province, remember it's a province of Persia, called Judah. They've lost their autonomy, right? They've lost their nationality. And it, basically, they're just there as a, as a shell. And he says two things. They are in Ra and they are Kerpa, is the two Hebrew words. He said, first of all, there is great Ra, R-A, which means great distress, much misery, much unhappiness. That's all tied up in that one Hebrew word, Ra. And the next word is Kerpa. And it says, and they are also in Kerpa, reproach. Now, reproach here means contempt 
or scorn. So here we have a very clear picture of what is going on in 444 B.C. The wall of Jerusalem, look at it, is also broken. It's broken down, Nehemiah. And its gates, they are burned with fire. Now, let's stop here for just a minute. Let, let me reiterate something I said earlier. For a city to have no wall means she is very vulnerable. She's very exposed to her enemies. And, and Hanani and his friends could not bring a more disturbing report to Nehemiah, somebody who loves God, and, and then they, they love their nation, and they love Jerusalem, and they're saying, it's it's. It's decimated, Nehemiah. I know Zerubbabel went, and I know he was trying to build it, but there are enemies there, and they're squelching it, and there's just chaos, and it's, and it's just breaking our hearts. It's such a discouraging scenario. In Ezra 4.12, it tells us what, what was going on there. It says, I don't know if you guys have that. You do. There it is. It says, let it be known to the king, Artaxerxes. Now, this is Ezra's time, right? This is 458, not 586, that the Jews who came from you have come to us at Jerusalem, and they are building a rebellious and evil city. And they are finishing its walls and repairing its foundations. And what happened, one, one commentary reads, let me share this with you, quote, the people who had been rebuilding the wall in Ezra's time, they were stopped by Artaxerxes who pressured some who was pressured by some Samaritans and Rehum, the commanding officer who may have been a Persian responsible to Artaxerxes. In other words, it's not going very good at all. There's a group there, they're, they're trying to, hey, you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt like you, you make maybe a couple of steps forward only to be hit in the face and go like three steps backward? You, you ever felt like that? Some of you going, welcome to my world. That's, that's my world, Brother Danny. I, I tell you, I'm trying to lead. I'm trying to do the right thing, but it just seems like there's one obstacle, obstacle after another. I try to lead my family and lead them well to the throne of God and be the, be the family of God He wants us to be, but it just seems like there's this enormous weight of pressure and, and responsibility, and I, and I just tell you, sometimes I think it's just going to push me down to the floor. Or I'm trying, Brother Danny. I'm so trying to lead my company well with biblical godly principles. And it's like, man, this is, I don't even really know if it's worth it anymore. I tell you, I'm a coach and I really try to lead my students and I, and I really try to point them toward the ways of God. But, but man, I'm telling you, there's so much pressure against me and, and I feel like I'm just the only one who's trying to do the right thing. Let me just tell you something right now, my dear friend, you are not alone. God loves you, God is with you, and when God is with you, you will prevail. You will win. You just have to be faithful. You just have to keep going. A smattering of applause. Thank you very much. Let me, let me take this off right quick. Brother Ken, help me out, brother. Would you give my tithes and offerings today, too? Don't look how much it is. Just, just give it to them. <laughs> and thank you. Is my wife here? No, she's not here. I don't like it when mama's not here. She's a She's backslidden in her ways. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. She's home. She's not feeling good. She's still not feeling good. I love you, dear. Praying for you. Maybe the Cowboys will win. Make you feel better today. All right, good. There comes the smattering of applause. 
The cowboys get as much applause as I forget. Man, I'm just done. I'm just kidding. So we are, we're here. Man, we're, we're deep. We're deep in Nehemiah chapter 1. In verse 4, let's go to verse 4 because this is going to catapult us into the, really the kind of man that he is. So it was. When I heard, now stop right there, church. How can you hear if you don't listen? And how can you listen if you don't ask questions? The main point that I'm going to try to make today for us, those of us who are in leadership, there are many times when we need to shut up and listen. Close our mouth. God gave us how many ears? How many mouths? So we should listen twice as much as we, yeah. So he's listening, going, what, what's going on? How's Jerusalem? How are the people? They're like, it's terrible. It's awful. I, I don't know what we're going to do, Nehemiah. And when I heard these words, Nehemiah said, I sat down. In order for him to sit down, what must he have been doing? He said, boy, this is really profound. He was standing up. Exactly. He was standing. I believe he buckled at his knees. I believe he... He heard this distressing news of contempt and scorn. I believe he just, his knees buckled, he sat down, and then what did he do? He just cried. He wept. Now, by the way, Nehemiah is a man's man. You, you're going to see, this, this, is a, this is one tough hombre. He, he don't back down from nobody. He is bold, he is strong, but he weeps. You know, a lot of times you see people in the Bible that are weeping, like a David, like a Jesus, like a Nehemiah. Those are not tears of, of weakness. Those are tears of compassion and meekness, okay? Don't, don't misunderstand. He said, and I mourned for many days, and I was fasting. Now, that, that struck me. I thought only clergy and pastor, religious type, you know, fasted and prayed. No, no, no. These are godly laymen who are fasting and praying before the God of heaven. My, my sister-in-law is on staff at a church uh, in Dallas, Fort Worth, called Gateway Church. I think they run about 35,000 or so. The first 21 days of every new year, they all pray and fast. Just fast for something or from something. And just seek the Lord for the blessing of their church. And so Nehemiah, this is what he does. He goes, man, I am fasting and I am praying before whom? Before Jehovah, before the God of heaven. And by the way, when you see that language, it clues us in to know that this is the one true God, that Nehemiah loves him, is worshiping him. He's outnumbered, yes. I mean, he is in a foreign country, yes. He's in a palace, not his own. He is working for the king, and yet his heart, his soul, his very life is dedicated to the one true God. And I'm telling you, you may be in a difficult place, and your boss may be a pagan, and your employees and the people around you may not like God at all, but praise God, he's, he's got you there for a reason, all right? You're the light. You're the gospel light, and you're illuminating and you're broadcasting your life. But sometimes, Brother Dan, I just feel like I'm just being squashed and I just feel like I'm not making a difference at all. Show up. Just keep showing up. Keep being faithful. Because God is using you just like he's about to use Nehemiah. 
So here he is. He's fasting. He's praying. He's listening. He's seeking the Lord. And things are about to change. The night is always the darkest before the dawn, right? It's not like the torrential rains are the heaviest before it dissipates, before it breaks. If I learn anything from Nehemiah, I learn persistence pays, passion for God will pay off, and there are times when you just got to rise up and lead. So there are three things I want you to notice with me, and I've got you an outline there in the, um, in the sermon bulletin insert. Number one, good leaders ask good questions, okay? Take this home with you today. Nehemiah asks questions. There are people who know what he does not know. And it's not arrogance, it's wisdom when you say, I do not know, tell me what I don't know. Hanani, what is going on? I'm, I'm here, you've been there, tell me. So I, I don't oftentimes recommend a lot of movies, but I do want to recommend a movie to you if you haven't seen it. Seen it. It's called Hidden Figures. And it's an excellent movie about three African-American ladies, brilliant mathematicians, computer scientists. In the 1960s in America, in the great state of Virginia, at the Langley NASA base, that their objective is to get John Glenn in the orbit around Earth, and the Russians are already ahead of us, and Kennedy is putting the pressure on NASA saying, guys, come on, let's catch up. And that's kind of the, the scene. And, and I was watching this movie, and I, I got to tell you all, can I just tell you a little sidebar, interesting note? <clears throat> I've been to NASA Langley multiple times. In fact, I had my own badge. Had my name, NASA that very base. I know what y'all are thinking. Y'all looking at me like, but you're not very good at math. Why are you there? And I, it's fair. It's fair. Sometimes it's not what you know. It's. I was discipling four NASA engineers and a medical doctor. For four years, I did this. Four NASA engineers, and one of them, a PhD in aeronautical engineering, he's teaching at, uh, he got his degree from Cambridge, he's at Penn State now. And so for four years, for two of those years, I would drive on base and I would show my, and I was just thinking, God, you're so good. Take that geometry and algebra and all that, take that here. And they say, well, come on in. And I'd go in. I wasn't there to teach math, I was there to share the Word of God. And so I got to do that for couple years, got to see this place. And so I was watching this movie and I was going, I've been there. I know this place. Al Harrison is the boss. And he is, man, he, he has got the weight of the world on his shoulders. This is a spoiler alert. If you, if you haven't seen it, this is, what, this is what's going down. Al Harrison, played by Kevin Costner, rough around the edges, but he's a great leader. And the reason I know he's such a great leader is because he asked the heroine of the story, Katherine Johnson, played by Taraji Henson, he will ask her, what do you think? And the others are going, it's very racist. It, it's, it's, it's the 1960s in America. And they're looking at Al going, don't ask her anything. What does she know? I mean, after all, she's the wrong color. It's awful, horrendous. 
And he basically rebels against that and says, shut up, you bunch of nitwits. She's the smartest person in the room. What do you think? And they they just kind of tuck their heads down. And she would say, and she's got her little glasses on. She's kind of nerdy. You know, she's like, well, I think we ought to do this. And she's a genius. She goes writing all these formulas and things. And she is the one that figures out the math when there was no math to help get John Glenn orbiting around the earth. And she saves the day. She's the heroine of the story. Now, she has an immediate boss. And his name is Stafford. His name is Paul Stafford. And it's played by Big Bang Theory's Jim Parsons. And he plays this really good. He's a nitwit, by the way. He's very jealous of Catherine. He doesn't want to ask her anything because he knows she's smarter than him and it embarrasses him. So he's just like, he gives her assignments. He goes, he just gives her this mundane work to do. And, and, but big boss, Al is like, no, he brings her into the room and John Glenn, one time they have this, this big crisis and, and John Glenn goes, well, ask that real smart lady what she thinks. She's, she's smarter than all of you. And I thought, good for you. When you don't know, ask questions. That's not a sign of weakness. That's a sign of intelligence. And so ask. And so he did. Serves as a great example. Number two, good leaders care. Good leaders care about the mission. They care about the project. They care more importantly about the people. And they're compassionate when trouble comes. They don't sweep it under the rug. They deal with it head on. How are the people, Hanani? How's the city? What's going on? And then when he tells them, he's just, he's just eating up with hurt and, and passion and, and compassion. And I like what Chuck Swindoll says in his book. It's an older book. I do recommend it if you can find a copy of it. It's called Hand Me Another Brick. That's the title of the book. And he says these words. He says, a leader must have compassion. Nehemiah was such a man. Alan Redpath writes this about Nehemiah. You never lighten the load unless you first have felt the pressure in your own soul. That's good. You are never used of God to bring blessing until God has opened your eyes and made you see things as they truly are. In this last sentence, Chuck Swindoll says, Nehemiah was called to build the wall, but first he wept over the ruins of the city. If you want to be a good leader, and I want to be a good leader, in my family, in my church, in my community, in this great city, the first thing you got to realize, there are a whole lot more people smarter than you. We have to ask questions. We have to to listen. You know, Ken, I was thinking about you on our mission trip. Ken, he asked a lot of questions. And Ken is very intelligent, but he was in a foreign land in another nation, and I'd been there multiple times, and so he would just say, what about this? And Mike, what what about that? And what are we supposed to do here? And he's brilliant, but there's some things he doesn't know, so he asks questions. And I just think that's cool. I think we ought to all ask more questions. And then number two, we ought to care. We ought to show compassion for those that we lead. And of course, I think about our Lord. In Matthew 9, 36, the Bible says that Jesus, when he saw the plight of the people, he was moved with a splake, nah, he was moved with compassion. And some of y'all may be thinking contrary. See, no, Brother Danny, not all good leaders care. Nick Saban, he didn't care about anything. General Patton, he didn't care about, oh, yes, they do care. They care greatly. 
They may be rough on the outside and they may have a tough exterior, but I'm just talking about the greatest coach who ever coached and the greatest general who ever led in battle. And I promise you, they care deeply, probably care more than anybody. And that was why they were so good at it because they care and they're passionate about it and compassionate about it. And the last thing I want to say, I can't say about Pat and Saban, but I can say this about us. I can say this about the people of God, and there it is, that good leaders are spiritual men and women. What happens here changes the world. Thank you, University of Texas. Glory to God. What happens here changes eternities. And that's what's at stake, that the church of the living God, we're this mighty organism, this the systemic blood of Jesus coursing through our lives and he raises us up to be the people of God he's called us to be. Yes, we ask questions. Yes, we care. And yes, we know God and we serve God. And what an honor and what a privilege it is. Verse four, Nehemiah reveals who he really, really is. He's praying. He's fasting. He's mourning. He's seeking the Lord. Can I just go ahead and tell you, this, this turns out really, really good. In record time, 52 days, he builds the wall. It's, it's ridiculous. But I bet Nehemiah can't see that right now. And if you're here today and you're, you're listening and, and God allows me to speak to pastors, whether it's preaching or podcast or whatever, internet, can, can I just say something to you pastors for just a minute? You may be like Nehemiah. And you may see it, it just looks dismal. Or you may be that coach. You may be that CEO. And you're really trying to do the right thing, but it looks, it's so prodigious that the boulder in front of you is so heavy. And you're standing up against that boulder and you're thinking, I'm just one solitary soul. And I'm, I'm, I'm no match for what I'm up against. I'm here to lead us to victory. I'm here to take this team to a winning season, or I'm here to get the profit margins going in the right way, or I'm here to help our church reach people for the gospel. But right now, some of you are thinking, I don't know how that's going to happen. And I may, maybe Nehemiah felt like that. How in the world? Ooh, I got a good word. Here it comes. You may be outnumbered, and you may be outmatched, but when God is with you, you win. You're in the majority when God is on your side. Watch this. Just make sure you're on God's side. Just, just make sure he's with you and you're with him. I'm, I'm excited about this study. I am. I look forward to see what God teaches us through the life of Nehemiah. Next week, we'll pick right up in verse 5 and we'll study his prayer. It's a powerful prayer. He says, I'm just praying to the God of heaven and I love chapter 2 when we get into that and he goes before the king. <laughs> it's powerful stuff. Well, the last thing I want to say is this. The Holy Spirit who wrote this book and inspired it is the same Holy Spirit that illuminates our minds to understand it and apply it to our hearts. Can I ask you a question? What has the Holy Spirit said to you today? I know he's spoken because he promises us that whenever we preach this book, and I, I know some of you about, I about put you to sleep and all those dates and kings and prophets, and y'all are just going, he's killing me. What in the world? Why do I need to know that? You just do. <laughs> you just need to know it. 
You just need to know history. You need to know what the Bible says. But let me ask you something. What did the Holy Spirit tell you in this sermon for such a time as this? I hope this is some of the things he told you. You can't lead for me if you don't know me. <laughs> you can't lead well if you don't live well. In order to live well, you've got to have the Spirit of God living within you. And then when He comes in, changes you, changes your family, changes your profession, changes your life. So first things first, some of you just give your life to the Lord. Be like Nehemiah. Be a spiritual man, a spiritual woman, someone who prays and fasts and knows God, knows Jehovah, and is in a relationship with Him. Let me invite you to do that. Others of you are here today, and you do love the Lord, you know the Lord, and you're up against some prodigious challenges, and I don't know what those are. And somebody on the outside may be looking in and going, well, that's not so bad, but it is bad because it's your deal, right? I just want you to know, you, God, God's working, and God's going to do some things that it's going to blow you away. You just got to be faithful. You just got to keep your hands on the plow and just keep looking straight ahead. Proverbs says don't turn to the left or to the right, but just keep your eyes straight ahead and watch what... Did I tell you all this ends really good? <laughs> it ends really good. So will yours. So will yours. You know why? Because God's with you. Thank you, Lord, for our time together. Thank you for the Word of God. Thank you that it is alive, Lord. 2,500 years removed, and it's like it's today or yesterday. And, Lord, we can only attribute that because this is your book, and we are your people, and we just love you, and we want to know you. We want to serve you. Father, I just uh, want to close this message as I began it. Thank you for the people of God here today. Thank you for those that are members of this church. And Lord, they love you. They love our church. And we want to build something, God. We want to build a great church that pierces the darkness and builds great men and women of faith and character. And build great leaders, Lord. Nehemiah kind of leaders. Nehemiah-esque where we care and we listen and we demonstrate our spiritual nature when we are fasting and we're praying and being the people you've called us to be. Lord, I know some here would remonstrance, they would debate and say, I just don't, I just don't think I can do that. I don't think I could ever be that kind of woman for God. But you can, lady, you can. Or teenager, student. You feel so outnumbered and you feel like the... I mean, you, you do feel like the... There's no way I could do this, but you can. You can take a stand in your university. You can take a stand in your middle school. And you can stand up and be that leader that people will follow and the Holy Spirit of God will be with you. You can do it. And Jesus will help you. So, Lord, I thank you that you're speaking today. Thank you that you're... I think most of all, God, you're just encouraging us right now. I know there's some conviction going on. There's some lostness here. But, Lord, most of all, I just think... You're speaking words of affirmation and blessing on us. Mm. <laughs> I receive it. I receive it, Lord. I receive your words of blessing upon this radiant church to be a church that pierces the darkness, that takes the gospel all over the world. Rise us up, O oh God. Raise up men and women, champions, Lord. Leaders, Lord, who love you, hate the devil, not intimidated, have that Nehemiah kind of spirit about him and they'll say, with God, all things are possible. Lord, we receive that. Lord, bless this invitation, would you? I pray for people that are struggling, God. Would you help them? 
And Lord, as we pray with one another, encourage one another, lift, oh God, lift that burden off of their shoulders. And Lord, empower us by your spirit, for we pray in Jesus' name. Woo, amen. Won't you stand with me, please? We'll sing to the Lord. Some of you want to come and, man, let us pray over you. You want to kneel before the Lord or come here at this altar. Let, it, let us encourage you. Let us build you up in your faith. You need a church home. You need a place where you can come and you can grow and be a part. Come, let us, let us be that church home for you today. God bless you as you come.